So tonight I'd like to continue our exploration of the Dharma that's sitting here with all of us. <clears throat> and if people in back could let me know if the sound should be a little higher, it's good. I don't know what that means. Up, a little more. Yeah. How, how about now? Is that a little better? Okay. Thank you. So, last night, um, Vinny was pointing at a certain component of practice that we've been pointing at a little bit since we began. All of us have pointed at it to some extent. Howie in the first night's talk and Anushka in, in the uh, metta, we've been pointing at the kindness, the care, the love in the way that Vinny was talking about it last night. That's a really important part of practice. And I used a quote, there was a quote the first night from the Buddha that I felt like um, Vinny was expanding on last night. And the quote was, from the Buddha who said, because we hold ourselves dear, because we hold ourselves dear, we maintain careful self-regard both day and night. And I, I love the quote, and I love what Vinny was saying that was pointing at the, what it means to hold ourselves dear. What does it mean to care for ourselves, to value ourselves, to appreciate ourselves, to love ourselves? given who we are, not who we're supposed to be, or who we could be, or what might happen, but actually given that we're alive here right now. And this living reality is what the Buddha was pointing at when he said, oh, this is what can awaken. This is where Buddha nature is. This is where the truth of the Dharma is sitting is right in our seats. And then he gave a lot of teaching to help illuminate that truth for all of us. And of course, we're here in this lineage that has continued for since the Buddha. And we could really say even before the Buddha because he, he was nourished by other lineages at first before he woke up. <clears throat> and Vinny said a, a, a lovely thing last night. I hope you all heard it. Did you? No, no. He, he said, he said, you can't do it wrong. Right? Did, I, did anybody notice that? Right? You can't do it wrong. And I appreciated that very much because I very much appreciate the paradox of the Dharma or the paradox of what it means to be alive and wake up. Because it's not just a straight through line, right? It's not just, oh, you do this, and then this, and then this, and then you're done, right? I hope we've all noticed that, right? Because especially for some of us who've been practicing 30 years or more, you know, it's, that's not how it goes. And so I appreciate it when Vinny said you can't do it wrong because part of the paradox is you can't do it right either. 
right? And 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 I mean that actually quite humorously and sincerely, because we all are trying to do it right. So we get, okay, how much longer does this enlightenment take? And will I be done by the end of the week or do I have to do another week or, you know? But I thought I would talk a little bit about the Buddha and what happened for him. Because one of the things I love about Buddhism and the Buddhist teachings is it's personal and impersonal both, which is part of the paradox. It's personal what's happening here. And it starts to reveal components of what's happening that are also impersonal at the same time. And one does not negate the other, part of the paradox. And so here, you'll, you, I hope you'll hear a little bit. This is the Buddha talking about his life. Right, he's he's talking to some of the uh, monastics, and he says, "I lived in refinement." He's talking about his life before he became a monastic. He said, "I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement." And I'll do a little Eugene translation as it goes, meaning he was like an upper class guy. Right? I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had uh, lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. Right? So he was a highly valued child, meaning dad was doing whatever he thought would make the Buddha happy. Right, so he had a lot of nice ponds and flowers, and and then he goes on to say, he said, a white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, from the heat, from dust, from dirt, and from dew. Right, so he's he's high class. He's being cared for, and he said he had three palaces. Right, he didn't just have one palace, right? He had a palace in San Francisco and a palace up in Marin, then he had a palace on Hawaii, right? He had three palaces. So he had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. And during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. I hope you hear that. Right? Right? I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them, and I did not once come down from that palace. Right? And so he's describing his life, which at, in his time and place in his culture was, un, was a high-class life. Right? He was the son of a prince, I mean, the son of a king. The king had a domain, you know, a country. Um, and then he goes on to talk about it. And then he says, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, then I started to reflect. What, when an untaught, ordinary person, themselves subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, they are often horrified or humiliated or disgusted, oblivious 
to the fact that they too are subject to aging. And I reflect then, and if I, who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, would be horrified, humiliated, disgusted on seeing another person who is aged, that would not make sense to me. And as I notice this, the young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. Right? So he has a ref- he's reflecting. He's reflecting on aging, right? And he's a young man, right? He's definitely um, somewhere around in his, uh, I believe, early 30s, like right around 30. And, uh, and he reflects. And as he reflects, oh, he's, he gets it. He starts to understand. If, 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 he, if he, that response doesn't make sense to him because he's also like that other person. He sees the mutuality of relationship, of beingness with other people, right? He's not just seeing himself, he's not just seeing them, he's seeing us, how we are together. And as I notice this, the young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away, right? And then he goes on, he continues, and there's a few of these, I'll do them a little quicker because it's the same uh, schema here, which is, he says, endowed with his fortune, his refinement, then he reflects, you know, about an ordinary person subject to illness, not beyond illness, sees another who is ill, and they have a reaction. They're horrified or humiliated or disgusted, oblivious to the fact that they too are subject to illness. If I, when I reflect on that, if I, who am also subject to illness, not beyond illness, were to react like that on seeing another person who is ill, that would not make sense to me. And as I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. Okay? So the intoxication with youth drops away. The intoxication with health drops away. And then he continues with the same words, right? Endowed with good fortune and refinement. And then I am thinking about how a regular person subject to death, not beyond death, sees another who is dead. They are horrified or, or humiliated or disgusted or upset in some way, oblivious to the fact that they too are subject to death. So I, who am also subject to death, not beyond death, were to be horrified, humiliated, disgusted, react, it wouldn't make any sense because I too will die. And as I notice this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. So this is the Buddha talking about his life and what happened to him that set the stage for enlightenment. His intoxication with youth, his intoxication with health, his intoxication with life entirely dropped away. And you might consider, we all might consider, our own intoxication with youth, with health with life because it's part of what happens for us. We're all a little bit 
intoxicated. And remember, the word intoxicated doesn't usually mean clear-minded or clear-seeing. It means things get a little blurred when we're intoxicated. And we can feel good about it when we're intoxicated. We, most people like getting a little intoxicated on whatever it might be. But it doesn't help us necessarily see clearly, see directly, see the truth of the way things are. And so I, I very much appreciate the Dharma in this, in what he said and what he gave us, talking about his personal life, right? Including how well off he was and how, you know, he enjoyed it, right? He didn't come down from that palace for four months when he was being entertained by all those people. And he was, and if you, of course, if you know the text, he was a total hedonist, the Buddha. And no joke about that, it's really true. I mean, total hedonist. And he lived that out, and he was, it didn't bring him the happiness he sought. And then he became a total ascetic, right? That he had a reaction to the hedonism, right? And he thinks, okay, that doesn't make me happy. You know, it's, it was fun, but didn't make me happy, right? And so then he goes to the other extreme, partly based on the traditions he was following, and he becomes ascetic, an anesthetic, and he starts living on one grain of rice a day, right? And, and there's even images where you'll see a Buddha sitting, and, and you see the skin, and then you just see the skeleton underneath, because that's what he was doing for a while. And that didn't bring him the happiness, the freedom that he sought either. And so what, he, what I believe this story tells so beautifully is something about what does it mean to let go? What does it mean to let go of our intoxication? of what obscures our vision, of what hinders our clear seeing of the truth of the way things are. Because this is it, right? Meaning, we're here, we're alive right now. And we won't be alive forever. We won't be young forever. Some of us are already not young, I can attest to that. Um, We won't be healthy forever. And we won't live forever. Those are just, that's all normal human reality. Those aren't mistakes or penalties or anything like that. That's just the way things are. And it's not even, it's more than human reality. It's a reality for all of the living sentient beings, right? Beings are born and they're, they start off and they're brand new and they're like, wow, look at that brand new puppy dog. Isn't that puppy dog cute? And a puppy dog grows into an adult dog and they can be good, good dog. And then grows into an old dog and kind of a pain in the butt after a while. And you love the dog anyways. I'm not saying that, but it, it turns into an old dog. And, you know, not, believe me, I know what that's like. I'm, I'm getting there. And, and things change. And so the Buddha's pointing at something here about intoxication and change. And in my language, paradox. And 
and Howie in the first night, he started with a beautiful poem that I love very much uh, from William Blake, where he said, he said, he who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Like that's the whole Dharma right there. And so, and the Buddha was pointing at these, and it's the whole Dharma, it's the whole Dharma, and it's paradoxical what's being said. You know, like, what the hell does that mean, right? You, you know, if you bind yourself to the joy, it ends, but if you kiss it, it flies. It sounds good, doesn't it? It's very poetic. Right? And, and, but it's even more, it's not just the joy, but, but one who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. I mean, just a beautiful image of reality revealing itself. <clears throat> and so the paradox of reality, which I believe is sitting right here, is sitting in each seat, is sitting in human life. Because human life isn't, it's not just this, 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 and then, okay, we're done. It goes every which way. Have you all seen that, human life? Like, you know, we think we know what we're doing. Good luck. Uh, I, I mean that very sincerely. I very much know what I'm doing. And then reality tells me something else or shows me something else, or reveals something else that helps illuminate my understanding of what's actually true. And I don't have this quote. I saw it today. It's a beautiful quote. Let's see, who is it from? I think it was from Uteshaniya, but, oh no, it was from the Buddha. It was from the Buddha about um, the goal of this life is understanding. The goal of our life is understanding. And it's a very, I like that very much because it's a very simple, clear, ordinary way to talk about what it means to wake up. Is to start to understand the way things are. And the way things are aren't just a list, even though the Buddha made lots of great lists to try to help us understand. But, but it's living in your seat. That's where the truth of the way things are is alive. It's in the consciousness of human beings that starts to awaken and discover what it does not yet know fully. <clears throat> And so I wanted to talk a little about paradox because it's, in my experience, in my understanding, it's part of the Dharma. And there's a quote from the Lankavatara Sutra that I love. It says, things are not what they are. Excuse me, things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise, right? Things are not what they seem, 
nor are they otherwise. That points at the reality of what's here. Beautifully, I believe. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. It's all together. We know it and we don't know it together. We start to see things and then there's more to know right there, even as we know things. And it is something I appreciate very much about Saito Uteshaniya, which is him pointing at awakening and the ongoingness of awakening. That awakening is not a static event. And I know somewhere in this talk I have something about static event later, about stasis, because it's a great piece that I'll speak more about. So this, things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. Beautiful understanding, a beautiful description of the mystery of reality, of the magic of what's here, of the uh, what's understandable and what's discoverable that's also here, that's not yet known. <clears throat> and one of the things that we've been pointing at is the shift in perspective with practice. And it's a paradoxical shift that happens as we start to land here or get here. And I, I hope, and I'm, what I've seen so far in the interviews is, oh, everybody's been landing here a little more every day. Right? We're a little more here. We're seeing a little more clearly, a little more acutely, or a little more uh, effortlessly at times. Like reality, just the, the, whether it's the, the atmosphere, you know, the clouds or the sun, or the, um, the, how it feels to be warm or cool at different times during the day starts to become a little more, it's tangible. You can taste the heat or cool, or you can smell the colors of the sky or the ground, or you start having a more intimate, what I'm pointing at is a certain kind of intimacy with direct experience, or even what happens as we're aware of our own reactions, and then what happens when our reactivity relaxes, when it starts stops being so predominant, it starts to go into the background instead of the foreground, and then the sense of release or relaxation, a word I like very much about practice, that starts to happen. That our direct experience is where the Dharma is. And it happens by being aware of all the normal stuff that's here, right? We're just, right, everybody got, we're not doing anything special, right? Getting up, go to the bathroom, come into the hall, sit, walk, get some food, walk a little more, do a little work meditation, come back to the hall, sit some more, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, 
eat, shit, sit, walk. You know, it's, it's, it's totally ordinary. And the extraordinariness is right there in the ordinariness. So beautiful. I, I, and it doesn't mean every, uh, you're all feeling, oh, it's all so extraordinary. No, you might be feeling, what is all this ordinary crap? You know, but, but that the Dharma is right here. It's not somewhere else. It's not in the statues, right? Great statues. The Dharma's alive. It's in people. And it's when we start to practice or be aware, be mindful of this human experience. Sight, sound, taste, touch, smell, feelings, thoughts. The whole deal is right here. This is from Joseph Goldstein. He said, the wonderful paradox of the spiritual path, the wonderful paradox of the spiritual path is that all of these changing phenomena are objects of our desire or our wanting, leave us, leaving us feel unfulfilled, while as objects of mindfulness, they become the very vehicle of awakening. Right? Oh, look at that. Do you see that? Look at that. Wow. The whole talk is over now. That's, that's just beautiful. Wow. I'm glad this beautiful spider didn't want to come too close to me, but close enough. Wow. Really, that's it? I mean, that really, and I mean that, you know, what, what the hell is that? Right? Where did that come from? Who invented that? Nobody. It comes out of the way things are, right? It's amazing life just comes and, you know, the talk was good enough so it came down and wanted to listen a little closer. <laughs> mm. So uh, partly I'm hoping to encourage becoming more intimate with your direct experience. Whether you like it or not, bye. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, wow, it's just amazing that, that life happens like that. And what a, yeah, I have to say, I have a very good view here. It's, it's framed really well, that spider, wow. Um, excuse me. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to encourage a certain kind of intimacy with experience, with the direct knowing, the direct awareness, with the closeness with it. Instead of, it's, we don't want to get further away. No, we want to get so close that then the experience takes us somewhere we might not be familiar with. I actually have a, something here in... Uh, from John Cage, who was, uh, I, don't, I don't even ever know what John Cage was, really. I know he wrote, and he was a musician, I believe. Yeah, he was a musician, John Cage, and composer, and yeah. Yeah, and kind of a cool guy, and he, and he studied Zen. And he wrote somewhere at the end of his life, he wrote, I am trying to be unfamiliar with what I am doing. 
Now that's a Dharma understanding. I am trying to be unfamiliar with what I am doing. Because reality is not what we think it is. It's alive. Right? So even when we know how to do something, we don't want our knowing to block the unknown aliveness that's now. And it is one of the things we all, we all, many of us contemplate, especially when one's been practicing a long time. One knows a lot. One knows how to meditate or has learned a lot of technique and a lot of skill and had a lot of good things happen, you know. Meditation brings realization in different degrees. But, but it doesn't matter. Every time is still new. And it's part of the paradox. Because, of course, it's not new, but it actually is new. And they're both true. Because this moment has never happened before. And of course, I could say that emphatically about now, because this moment has never happened before. But we tend to live as if we know what a moment is. And we have our relative understanding, and that's good, but we don't want it to obscure the truth of Suzuki Roshi said, he said, uh, uh, I, uh, when I realized no moment could be repeated, I was enlightened. When I realized no moment could be repeated, I was enlightened. And, and he's worth paying attention to because he was a beautiful being and quite uh, an awakened human being. <clears throat> so there's a change in perspective that comes with practice where we start to uh, discover reality moment by moment by moment. And then reality starts to reveal itself. The truth of the Dharma starts to reveal itself right here because it's the only place it can reveal itself is right here. Hmm. So here's one part of the paradox I thought I would point at a little, which is awareness, right? Awareness. Everybody, is everybody aware right now? Any, anybody not aware right now? <laughs> just, uh, just checking, okay? So everybody's aware. So please be aware. Um, so, so now everybody, I want you to really do this. Stop being aware. No, I'm serious. Stop it. Right. Can anybody stop being aware? Right. So, and I'm pointing at something here because you're all aware. Every, nobody raised their hand when I, they, I said, who's not aware? Right? You're all aware. And you can't stop being aware. 
what does that tell you about the nature of awareness? Is it yours? Is it your awareness that you can't, you have no control over? Or is it your neighbor's awareness and they're letting you use it for a little while and they're going to turn it off a little later? Please turn off your, your, your neighbor's awareness right now, everybody. Right? Okay, that's not going to happen. Awareness is not something we do. We may focus our attention at times, that we do, but we're not doing the awareness. So it starts to point us at the, what's often talked about in Buddhism as the not-self component of our reality of what's sitting here, right? Eugene doesn't own awareness here. I'm totally aware. And awareness is here, but I'm not doing it. I'm not, I can't not do it. I can't even grab it. Can you, anybody grab their awareness? Can you put it in your pocket or? Or in the bowl. We'll put it in the bowl. We'll do a little ritual if you put it in the bowl. Can't, it's, it's not what's happening. But everybody knows that awareness is here. It's a little like the water we swim in if one is a fish. Fish don't think much about the water. It's just part of reality. But it's not, the, it's not a fish. Water and fish are two different things on a certain level. Maybe on another level, they're inescapably connected or intrinsically connected. But awareness is here and it's paradoxical because we don't own it. It's not mine. We can't stop it. We can't even start it, really. It just kind of comes with the territory, it seems. Here's another paradox that I like about awareness that feels very helpful. Because one of the things we've been pointing at is how we get identified or how we cling to something. You know, I want this, or it's pleasant. Oh, I'm going to get more of it. Or it's unpleasant. I'm going to get rid of this. I hate this stuff. And, you know, we get identified and we get, we kind of grasp certain things or we grasp by pushing away, which is considered another form of clinging in Buddhism, right? Pushing away. The awareness, like you're all aware right now, in my understanding, in my view, awareness is not bound to what it's aware of. Awareness is not bound to what it's aware of. All, everything we know, right, it's just known immediately by awareness. The awareness is not having a reaction to, right? Awareness just knows. And it's not just knowing this. 
It's knowing what you're thinking, what you're feeling, you know, how, how you're enjoying the talk or not. It's seeing me, you're being seen, you're seeing me, you're aware of me. But the awareness is not bound to what it knows. It just knows what's here on different levels, right? And the six sense doors are, those all become part of what's known by awareness. But the awareness is not one of the six sense doors. And it's paradoxical because the awareness that's not bound to what it knows starts to point us at a bigger component of the reality that's sitting in each seat of who and what we are. And I believe I said this before, right? It starts to point at the not-self component of reality. And all I mean by that is we get bound to things. I get bound to stuff all the time. Oh, I like that. I like those socks. Wow, I want some of those socks. If I have those socks, then I'll be okay, right? Then I'll actually, then I'll be able to sit really good if I got socks like he's got. How'd he get those nice socks, right? I get bound to socks. It's a thing of mine. So, so, and and of course, we get bound to a lot of things that we see or hear or, or smell or taste or touch or feel or think. But the awareness, which is already here, which we're not doing, is not bound to any of it. And so it's pointing at part, one of the components of freedom that the Dharma is pointing at that when we're not bound, when we're not clinging, when we're not attached, when we start to let go is the phrase usually, something good happens and we know it, even when the letting go is hard. And it is at times, but there are different levels of letting go. So let me just say, when it's really hard, we're we're doing forced letting go often. Right? We know we're letting go, but we hate it. Right? But at some point, we finally come into alignment with the truth, and then we re- something relaxes. And even though it's hard or we're not happy about it, we let go and we quit holding on. And the not holding on is also talked about as release or in my language these days, relaxation. We relax. And so then we can just be here as we are, not having to be some other way. And one of the components that the Buddha pointed at that help us both to perceive and to understand and to realize the truth of the Dharma, of the way things are, of the fact that, here, here's another, I'm doing a little promo for letting go. Think for a moment about what can you really hold on to? Just reflect for what, what, what do you, what can you really hold on to? And I mean really hold on to. 
And I have a certain view that I'll say, which is that there's nothing we can really hold on to. That we think we can hold on to something, you know, to a, you know, a light switch, or we can hold on to uh, an iPhone or a computer or the right whatever it is, skateboard or car, whatever it might be, or hold on to the right job. If I get the right job, I'm going to keep that job forever. I can promise you, you won't keep it forever. That there's nothing we can, act, or, or partner, if I get the right partner, that'll, that's all I need, and then I'm, I'm good forever. Good, you know, good luck and all that. I mean, uh, I try with that, <laughs> and you know, I'm doing okay, but <laughs> it's not forever, which is part of the paradox of reality, which is reality is impermanent, is the word. Anicca, Anicca, and Anicca is uh, taught pointed at by the Buddha. It's one of the characteristics of reality. He says, pay attention to this. Pay attention to the truth that everything is impermanent. That all conditioned things are impermanent. And he's not trying to make us feel bad. It's not anything like that. It's just now, oh, the truth, as I believe I said the other day, or maybe in a group, the, group, the truth will set you free right? That's the Western version. Right? He's pointing at the Dharma, the truth, that everything, all conditioned things arise and sustain for a moment or a while or a long time, and then they change or they fade or they dissolve or they disappear. And that's reality. And one of the things we're learning with the Dharma is to come into alignment with the way things are. And one of the great and difficult paradoxes is that the impermanence that the Buddha's pointing at is sitting right here, right? It's sitting in each seat. We're all here for a while, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 110, you know, maybe 115. And then we're gone in this form. And that's just, it's not a bad thing. It's not a mistake. It's not the wrong thing. Sometimes it's very sad. Sometimes it can be quite tragic uh, given the ignorance of the world. But it's just, that's what happens. That's the way life works. And it's true for us. It's, you know, Spirit Rock's looking quite beautiful. All these great trees, they're all impermanent. They're not going to be here forever. Reality. And so we start to come into touch with the fact, oh, we are reality. We are impermanent. And we start to relax with the truth of the way things are. And what I've heard and also seen personally is that when we let go of the need 
for things to be static. Meaning, I used that word before about reality being static. It's not static. We're not static. And you all know what the opposite of stasis is, right? Or, or static? Ecstatic. That's the good part of the paradox. We're not static, we're ecstatic. We're alive and we're still discovering the ecstasy of what it is to be here. What it is to be here and wake up together. <clears throat> so Anicca is one of the doorways, right? It's one of the beautiful characteristics of reality that we call impermanence or change. And they, it happens, and it, we see it all the time, right? This, this talk began, you know, 35 minutes ago or something, and it's going to end, right? It's not static. I mean, I could talk for four or five hours, but you would really be sick of me by then, I can assure you. But, but it, even then, it would still start and end, right? The coming and going of each experience, right? Like however your body felt when the talk st started, it may be the same, or it may have changed, it may be better, or it may be worse, or, but, it's gonna, it's, but it's also gonna end in this form in a few minutes, right? And then you'll be walking and it'll be different. The whole feel for you, for your body will be different, good or bad, or somewhat the same. That can also happen. But it's not static reality. And one of the things Anicca points us at that I think is really helpful is that we're not in control. I feel a little uh, sorry to tell you all that, <laughs> but it's true. We're not in control. And at least what I've seen in myself and in other people is, oh, we all want to be in control because we feel better and we think that that's whatever should happen, this is the way it should happen. And if we control it, we can make that happen a little bit. And it's it's fine to, you know, do a little bit of that and have some of that. But, but coming into alignment with reality means we start to relax with the way things are. And we're not in control of the way things are. We have a little bit of input that Vinny was pointing at last night about how we respond to the way things are. And that's good, but you know, to be totally honest, I don't have much control over that either. I just have my reactions and I've learned enough how to allow my reaction without having to totally believe it or identify with it. You know, I had, uh, I'm, I'm just free associating here right now, but I'm going to, I had a big bike accident a few years ago and it was very serious and difficult and a uh, hard accident in many ways and uh, uh, including a brain injury and what they call mild traumatic brain injury. And when I got a little better, which took quite a while, I kept wondering, 
what the hell is not a mild traumatic brain injury? Because that was that was serious enough. Um, and and I went to a recovery group at some point because everything got taken away for a while. I was in hospital five weeks, and I mean it was very serious. And uh, and then afterwards home, and uh, you know, and I I was kindly and well taken care of by my family and friends but uh, it was it was hard and then and and I couldn't function normally for quite a while and uh and so I, I my wife found a, a really good recovery program and I said okay I'll go because I didn't even know any better not to to say no so I went and um and uh they um they interviewed me for three hours to see if they would let me in the program. And then they let me in the program and I went to one meeting and then I, there was an, another meeting with them and, and they weren't sure about me and then I did another. And then after the second meeting, they said, well, you don't have to come anymore. And I'm like, like what? You know, I was not recovered, but in, and and uh, they explained to me slowly, and I still had individual contact with them for a while, that all they were trying to teach people to do is be right where they were. That's how the recovery happened. Not by doing something, but actually by relaxing and being right where you were. And I had a little bit of skill at that because I'd done a lot of practice. And I didn't even, I didn't ever thought, oh, I'm going to practice this way. It just came on its own because I didn't have enough of my usual cognitive functioning to think, oh, I'm going to do this. I mean, it was, it was a different world for a while, but the Dharma came forward on its own. And they, so they kicked me out. <laughs> so I was like, okay, good, thank you. Uh, so, and, and you know, and then even this, I'll just tie it into the talk, because nobody knew what was going to happen after I had this quite serious accident, and I sure didn't know, and I, and my family didn't know. It was very difficult, but things change, and we didn't know if, really if it would change for better or for worse, because I could have died. That was definitely one of the p points where they, don't, they didn't know, the doctors didn't know exactly what would happen. And of course, they always try to give you the best, but they also, they, they don't know a lot, the doctors, they're all doing their best. And things change and things keep changing, and we don't know what's going to happen. So I'm saying this partly because we can start to relax with the way things are, because we are the way things are. I hope that makes sense. We are impermanent. We are living impermanence. Right? And you all know it. You've all watched your thoughts and feelings and bodies and lives change. It's just, it's just what happens. And it's not like, you know, and right or wrong or good or bad. Those are different p pieces of it. But starting to relax with the isness of it, with the truth of the way things are, is what the Dharma is pointing us at, at 
towards that allows us allows a certain letting go or freedom to just be. And the beingness is inherent in our human beingness. So I'll end with a quote from the Buddha. I could go Buddha or I could go Rumi. Either way, they're both good, but I'll just go Buddha here. Oh yeah, I have a lot of good quotes. Part, part of the duke of being a teacher for a long time. Too many good, good quotes. The Buddha said, when those who are wise, when those who are wise dwell in contemplation on the transient nature of the body, heart, and mind, when those who are wise dwell in contemplation on the transient nature of the body, mind, heart, and all conditioned existence, they experience joy and delight, seeing through to the inherently secure. When those who are wise dwell in contemplation on the transient nature of the body, mind, heart, and all and of all conditioned existence, they experience joy and delight seeing through to the inherent secure, to the inherently secure. This is from the Dhammapada. That something's being pointed as for us to wake up to as we start to come into alignment, as we start to open to, as we start to relax with the truth of the way things are. So let's sit together for a moment, please. When those who are wise dwell in contemplation on the transient nature of the body, mind, heart, and of all conditioned existence, they experience joy and delight, seeing through to the inherently secure. May we awaken together. May all beings awaken together. few minutes for a walking practice now. <clears throat> 